This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida. And this is Tara Tibbetts from Fort Worth, Texas. And you're listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for January. I think we're coming at the 20th. There we go. Episode 2603. Good morning, Horse World. This is our special once a month episode about fox hunting. We come to you on the third Thursday of every month. So please mark your calendar and come back and join us if you're interested in fox hunting. Woohoo! And coming up on today's show, once we catch up on adventures from this past month since we chatted last, we have our uh, term of the month, which involves where uh, oiled gloves. I don't know what the heck they are and why we care. And then Nancy Williams and Bruce M. Oh, I messed it up. Nancy Ambrosiano, who is the master of mm-hmm. Cosmo Drone Hunt, stops by and we geek out on foxhounds. And then Beth Dombrowski is going to stop by and she is fo- has fox hunted a standard bread, an off the track standard bread. And we're going to hear all about that. And it has a little bit of a star quality to it. So that's our show coming up. And uh, what have you been up to since the last we chatted? Not staying home? Yeah. Yeah, lots of staying home. Um, I actually haven't hunted at all since the last episode. And I had, I had, I had Jen, was it two weeks ago, Wednesday? So the first horse I ever fox hunted when I first got introduced to fox hunting was Jaguar, who was my, he was born in my parents' house when I was 13 years old. We own the stallion and the mare. He was my 4-H project that I, I showed him as a yearling, and then I I started him as a 2-year-old and showed him in 4-H, and then he showed a lot of talent, and mom and dad spent a bunch of money and sent him to a trainer, and we went to the world championships in reigning, and then my mom showed him, and then I moved to Texas and fast-forward met and figured out that I could fox hunt, and he was my first fox hunting horse. So, pretty remarkable creature to go from the world championships and reigning to fox hunting. Yeah. Not a typical career path. No. And he, his mom was race bred and his dad was a son of doc bar, which if you're at all into quarter horse cutting bloodlines, doc bar is like the be all end all of cutting bloodlines. And Jaguar was 15 hands. So he was a little big for a reiner, but he, was a delightful size for fox hunting in Texas because you could open and close gates and he would cross and jump anything. And I actually wrote him, I worked at Justin, the boot company for a few years and he participated in a photo shoot. They didn't really have, they had a bunch of like arena show horses, but they didn't really have anything to do that did cross country. And I was like, well, I fox hunt on Jaguar. I can use him. So we did a photo shoot and I got some amazing pictures oh, of him. Wow. How cool is that? Yes. So did you get to wear Justin boots when you did it? Yes, Justin, they had an English line for like 10 seconds and it was wonderful um, and super comfortable, but it, it didn't take off. (laughs) 
unfortunately, but I do have some really, and I can, I can send you to put in the show notes, some pictures from that, that were pretty amazing, but Jaguar collect two Wednesdays ago. So not last Wednesday, but the Wednesday previously, he's 27 years old. I've had him since he was literally an embryo. He's never collect before. He's really never been lame before. Um, the vet and I were entirely confident at 10 a.m. that we would be making a call on euthanasia before five. It was a really, really hard day. Um, but he pulled through. He's fine. Really? Yep. Wow. Um, were you able to track down the, uh, the cause or anything or did it just get better? So what, what we were both pretty confident it was is, so I've, I've had a little, um, Jaguar has bad teeth, like, and it, we think he's probably had bad teeth his whole life. And when I say he has bad teeth, it's like they're loose in his head. Cause he, you can, you can literally shoe the horse in the middle of the pasture with no halter on. And I'm talking like hot shoe, like rain or slide <laughs> plates, like shoe the horse. He, you, he will load in any trailer. Like he's just super easy, but he is a bear to do his teeth. And you know, as, as I've worked through veterinarians in the 27 years I've had him, um, he just probably doesn't chew stuff very well, never has. So what we think happened is I've been feeding him soaked coastal hay for the last probably six years. He's been getting soaked hay. He can't chew it anymore. And so we think it just got, it got um, oh, impacted in his impaction. intestines. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she, she did a rectal exam and she could feel a small intestine. And so she thought he maybe had a strangulation somewhere. Cause she said, you never can feel the small intestine if it's, a basic colic, like if it's mm -hmm. just a gas colic or like a stomach, you know, whatever. But we took him off feed and they did oil and fluids and all those things. And it was interesting when, when the vet left my head, she came to my house because, and there's a whole other separate story of, I didn't have a horse trailer because I ordered a new trailer and I took my old trailer to the dealer to sell and I hadn't picked up the new one yet. So I'm here with no trailer and I had to call a friend and be like, Hey, my horse is colicking. Can I borrow your rig? Um, so they brought the rig over, dropped it off. The vet left and she was like, we had the whole conversation about euthanasia. Friends dropped off their rig, got him loaded, took him 30 minutes to the clinic. And I got him off the trailer and the vet was like, I did not expect to see a horse that looks this great. So wow. he stayed at the vet clinic for three days. Um, just out of a, an, abundance an abundance of caution. Of caution. Which I, yeah, especially yeah. since you weren't able to say, oh, we know exactly, you know, what was going on in there. And it was all a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. 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 And he's in a yeah, high risk cate category. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so we've taken him off hay completely. He's just getting soaked off alpha cubes. He does still go on turnout, but it's been interesting. I've paid a lot more close attention to him in turnout. And he really, like, he grazes a little bit, but he just kind of, like, hangs out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I've, and my husband would tell you that I'm kind of morbid about it, but I, I've been planning for him to die for years because I don't want to be unprepared. Yeah. Well, like emotionally preparing. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, that and, makes perfect sense. Yeah. And just to have, you know, and it, it could happen to any horse, but if, you know, X thing happens, like, what do we do? Like, or is it accessible? Like, I don't want him to suffer and, and. Yeah. And so it's, you know, I just, I feel very fortunate that he is completely back to his old self. And it's just kind of funny. He's always been a really smart horse. Um, this kind of harkens to our conversation later about, you know, different types of dogs, but he reminds me of a sighthound cause he's, 
he's not warm and fuzzy and wants to be in your lap. He just kind of observes things and and participates as he deems appropriate mm-hmm. and um very smart, very very conscientious of his environment. And I just seen a change in him to be like he was in the barn aisle the other day and he's always been kind of a pig like likes to eat. And he'd kind of come into the barn aisle and I have a wheelbarrow with, that I keep the hay bale that I'm feeding currently. And he walked over there and looked at it and just kind of sniffed it and didn't even take a piece. I was like, he knows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not supposed to eat that anymore. Yeah. Uh, it, that does nothing good for me. I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. Is he is he taking to the new diet? He's, he's cool with it? Yeah, and I'd been feeding him alfalfa cubes. He's with just getting more of them now. <laughs> yeah, he's just getting more of it. Exactly getting more of them now do you did you go with a specific type or brand of alfalfa cube or just what was there available at your local dealership yeah it's it's and it's i can't remember the name of the brand but it's the same alfalfa cubes that we fed when i lived in mile city montana it's and they're made in i believe idaho Mm -hmm. because i know there's different types depending on what kind of machine they use we here at our house we use the mini cubes because scooter doesn't get hard feed per se, but he right. does, we do give him meals at mealtime that can carry his vitamin E supplement and that we can mix with his, his um, bal- ration balancer. And we use these mini cubes because they dissolve reasonably quickly. Um, but they also have big cubes and then they have these cubes that yeah. are super fluffy. It's a cube, but it's not as dense as, the typical cubes that we're used to seeing. And they're almost giant. They're almost a very nearly tennis ball size that I've seen. So yeah, I don't know if you had a I preference feed, for one or the other. So I do the bigger cubes, not the fluffy ones, but I do the bigger cubes. Mm-hmm. Um, not the mini cubes, but the, the, the bigger ones. The Cause it's a little cube. bit. Yeah. You soak that and it's a little bit closer to kind of like a hay consistency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, Everyone else is going to town on their hay, and he he loves his alfalfa cubes. He's super happy with it. Yeah. So, and I, you know, the beet pulp I think is just a little bit of extra fiber, and he seems to get excited about it. So, and the veterinarian said it was great to continue to feed that to him. I love and he's, beet pulp. Yeah, <laughs> he's carrying probably the best weight that he has, and in the last like three or four winters, I would say yeah. I always try to try to plump him up. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an easy keeper when he was younger, but the older he's gotten, he's, he's not a hard keeper, but he's been harder to put weight on. And I think it's just because his teeth are so bad. Yeah. So the veterinarian comes and works on his teeth twice a year and like, he has to get anesthetized. Put him out, put him out, huh? Yeah. He, he's, yeah. It, he doesn't, dorm is not enough. <laughs> well, you know, he's pretty much perfect in every other way. So. And that's, I mean, that's my whole, like, if this is the worst thing I have to deal with with this horse, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, I agree. Those, those gems are so, yeah, he was, he's your horse of a lifetime. He's your horse, hard horse. Yeah. When I always tell Kevin, if, if I could, like, if I had the finances and I could justify it, I would clone that horse in a heartbeat. Yeah. They're pretty special. Yes. Yeah. Pretty special. And speaking of special. Um, every yes. month you do a term of the month and a few weeks back we came across, I came across a Facebook post on one of the Fox hunting Facebook pages and somebody yep. was asking about oiled wool gloves. 
I have never heard of anything called an oiled wool glove. So I said, please make that the term of the month. So enlighten me. So it's funny. The, the, the person who asked about him was Sarah McKay, and she's one of the masters for the new hunt from for Ozark Island Hounds. We had her on the podcast maybe last episode or the episode before that. Um, and she, she grew up in Virginia, and she's very, very traditional with her attire. And I've Googled it. Cannot for the life of me find like a definition or anything like that. But you always hear or read if you go to different hunt clubs websites and they talk about what is appropriate attire. They always say string gloves, right? I've heard white string gloves. They're the ones that you tuck underneath of the billet straps, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Which white string gloves sound stupid to me to wear fox hunting when it's cold and wet and rainy and snowy. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Well, it makes sense if you look at, so if you Google oiled wool gloves, trying to say this correctly, they're very common in England. And what, so in my research, what I found is that they're made with oiled Aran wool, A-R-A-N. And so I was like, what's Aran? Like it, is it like some Some foreign word? And, And I couldn't find specifically that but I could find that it's, it's like a size of, um, yarn is the Aaron. And it's what it says in the definition I found is that you knit using four to five and a half millimeter millimeter needles originally created for fishermen's jumpers, which in England is a sweater use when DK, which is double knitting, isn't heavy enough. And chunky is too bulky, perfect for outdoor or warm clothing. So it's a size of yarn that is ideal for a fisherman's sweater, essentially, and also evidently hunting gloves. And I, I was trying to find a detailed description of the process, but what I what they seem to do is they oil the yarn individually and then they knit it into gloves. And from what Sarah said on her post was she's never worn oiled wool gloves and her hands ever get cold. Which it kind of makes sense because the oil would prevent the yarn from soaking in moisture if you're in snow or rain. Yeah. But obviously a wool um, fiber is going to be warmer for your hands than leather. Yep. Interesting. So the so it's oiled, on my list oh, now. Yeah. I'm going to order some. Yeah. Oiled wool refers to the specific yarn being used to create the glove. That that is my interpretation of what I could find about it. And Aaron wool is the specific diameter. I'm going to call it diameter. It might be string count or something. I think they do it by weight with with yarn. I have to ask my mom. She's a yarn nut. Um, yeah, I think of whale, which is a corduroy thing, like the yeah, whale. Yeah, I think that the might size. be the wool equivalent. Yeah, interesting. I because back in the day when I was in Pony Club. And everything had to be just so. I always had right. white string gloves because I did dressage in white string gloves. And I fox hunted in white string gloves. Two sports in the modern day that could not be further apart. <laughs> and yet yes. you wore the same gloves. <laughs> Were they comfortable? Yes. Did Very. the reins not slip through your hands? Um, No, actually the cotton that they were made of, their cotton string gloves... Uh, when the cotton, you know how cotton socks can be when they get wet, they actually chafe 
Yeah. Cotton, the cotton string gloves had that same effect. When they were wet, they were actually kind of chafy, sticky. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they, I did I'm not intrigued. find them slippery. Like I, I'm definitely going to order some. And they're, they're very, like, it's funny that, like, the, the timeline of this. So I don't really have any, like, I have a couple pairs of, like, like leather hands, crochet bat, fox, gloves to wear for fox hunting. Mm-hmm. But I kind of feel like I needed to get some new ones. And I was like, I'm totally going to get some oiled wool gloves. Well, get them. Which so Hunt we Country, can talk about it on the show. Yes. So we can do like a, you know, a product review. Absolutely. I'm fascinated. We need to find, we need to find the company who still makes them. There's a, in England, like if you look in England, there's a, like a bunch of websites that sell them. And I kind of think they're all made by the same place. Um, I'm willing to bet that they are. Yes. I'm, I am on Townfields Saddlers Limited and I'm on Hunting Gloves Hold Tight. So I think Hold Tight brand and it yes, looks as if I they're saw maybe that made by Chester mm-hmm. Jeffries. Yep, Chester's our new best friend. We need to hear from them and find out about the history. And the, they probably use the same knitting machines since 1912 to make them. Yep. <laughs> and I'm, I'm fascinated. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for the, um, the uh, background on oiled wool gloves. And one more question. No, yeah. I'm going to save this question till after we chat with our guests. I'm going to save okay. it. It has to do with gloves. So stay tuned, folks. But for now, we are going to get Nancy Ambrosiano on from Cosmo Drone Hunt and have a little chat about what they've been up to this year. And a little, we're going to geek out a little bit on foxhounds. A little bit. I'm delighted to be talking today to Nancy Ambrosiano, who is a master of foxhounds at Cosmo Drone. Y'all are in Santa Fe, technically, right? That's right. And, we, you know, I'm trying to not, like, focus a bunch this season on COVID, but I do think it merits conversation to talk to different hunts. And and I follow Cosula Drone online on Facebook, and I've actually uh, walked out hands with y'all in the summertime, not this summer, but the summer previously. And, and New Mexico has had... Um, some of the stricter COVID guidelines, but y'all have been able to adhere to those guidelines and continue hunting. So I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about Cosa Drone's experience this hunt, you know, this hunt season with the the COVID stuff. So tell us a little bit about yourself and Cosa Drone and how long you've been there and about this unique season we're having. Oh, I'd be happy to. <clears throat> so um, sorry if I clear my throat a little bit. I'm still recovering from COVID, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it, it lingers um so Cosa drone is a very small hunt but a fabulous group of wonderful friends and terrific hounds and um we are as you said based our kennels are based in santa fe and we hunt around the area we're fortunate to have really uh terrific wide open public land that we have access to so we benefit from the Bureau of Land Management and U.S. Forest, Forest Service um, making that land available for us. Um, and our hunt this year has been definitely, it's, there's been a significant impact from the COVID restrictions and also just of our members being really careful. Um, you know, the, the age and status of many of our members is such that they are in the high-risk groups. And so 
um, with quite a few of our folks, you know, discussed and debated and said, okay, well, I, you'll see me after I get a vaccine. Um, then we've had others who've been comfortable with how we're managing it and have been able to continue coming out. Um, <clears throat> the trick for us in Santa Fe is that we are limited to groups of no more than five. And initially that sounded like something that was just going to wipe us right out. And then we realized, well, no, that means that we have first field one, first field two, <laughs> first field three. You know, we, we just uh, split up into um, more widespread uh, groups. And uh, since we usually have um, just th three or four whips plus our huntsmen, our groups have been within state guidelines. Um, but there, there, we did, of course, I think like every hunt in this country, have had lots and lots of deep discussions about how could we make sure that we're protecting our members? You know, how awful would it be if the hunt was the source of an outbreak? If we became a super spreader event, uh, we right, would feel right. awful. So um, we've just been really careful. We remind people, you know, park at a distance. Please don't clump up. If you're not on a horse, wear your mask. And if you're on your horse and you want to wear a mask, good on you. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I think really your group a, idea mm -hmm. is just brilliant. Like that is so clever. And I, I, I yeah. just, I never would have thought I'm of that. I'm going to file that under making lemonade. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's kind of what we were aiming for. And and actually, as it's turned out, our, our groups have been small anyway, as I said, because so many of our folks have just said, you know, we just can't do it. We, we don't dare come out of the house at all. And And my experience was that my husband and I were being super careful. He was the only one who went to the grocery store and he would mask up and glove up and use hand sanitizer and stay away from everybody. And he was just so, so careful. So when he began showing symptoms the week before Christmas, and then I began showing symptoms on Christmas Eve, we were stunned. We, we went and got tested. He tested positive right then. And I didn't test positive until the next test. But by then, I had already been at the barn with my farrier and my vet, and you know everybody's mask, and we're maintaining distance. But my poor farrier spent the entire Christmas holiday staying in his camper instead of potentially ex exposing his wife because he was waiting to get tested. And let me tell you, getting tested and getting results around the holidays is not an easy project. It's tricky anyway. So. Um, yeah. So yeah, so we here we were being so so careful, and he and I ended up with it, and we've had as far as I know one of our other hunt members just one has had it. That's but, pretty um, good. I'm I'm so relieved because like I said, a lot of the folks that are out hunting with us are you know in their fifties and sixties, and are not people who really should be exposed to such a thing. So yeah. Um, the so it worked well for us on the hunting you know breaking into groups of five was terrific um and it made it quite charming because we could then bring along the next several generations of potential field masters oh, <laughs> everybody <yes>. got it <laughs> everyone got a try at it um and then of course i've been out for a month so thank you covid um yeah but the the uh 
then the the other impact it's had was on breakfasts. We right. normally absolutely love our breakfast time together. We we do tailgate breakfasts that are they're not ornate, um, but we have terrific food. We have wonderful cooks in our club, and to our great sadness, we've had to say. Yeah, there's really not going to be, you know, initially we started with there might be a small distanced breakfast, but then we said, you know, we're not even going to say the word breakfast. If a couple of people want to get together after the hunt and sit down and have sandwiches at distance from one another, that's fine too, but we're not having anything that we would really call a breakfast and, um, you know, we're not doing not passing a stirrup cup. We're not sharing flasks except for people who are in the same bubble with each other already. So it's been, it's been difficult because we tend to be a fairly huggy group. (laughs) We want to sit for hours with each other and we want to greet it with great fulsome greetings and lots of hugs. And, and the fact that I haven't been able to hug anyone in my hunt for so many months is just, it's just devastating. Yeah. Do you hunt the hounds? Who hunts? Who hunts your hounds? Oh gosh, no, I don't. I would be, I would be hopeless. Um, we have a, a wonderful fellow, um, Rick Atchison, hunts the hounds okay. for us some of the time, and the other part of the time, one of our founding masters, Brian Gonzalez, loves to hunt hounds whenever he can. So uh, we have the benefit. Unfortunately, our pack is terrifically flexible like i said our our hounds i think are completely magic they can hunt where there's no where there's no scent where there's absolutely there's been no rain for weeks and weeks and weeks and they're running through cactus and sand and they find quarry and we have great runs and they do it for either of the two potential huntsmen so i just think they're magic hounds do you have some side hound bred into your hounds at all or are they just all oh. fox hounds? Oh, so that's the fun experiment we've been doing. We have we have our regular pack, so it's crossbred. Um, uh, and then our folks have been talking with um, the folks at Grand Canyon Hounds about their breeding program because they were beginning to experiment with more of a kind of a lurcher fox hound approach, and so. Uh, we actually picked up a few of their youngsters that are half Saluki and half running Walker. So they're okay. very different, very different from what we have normally had. But our, you know, coyotes are so darn fast and our country's so open. We dry thought, and what, it's dry. What if? Oh, so dry. So we said, what if the back had these sort of resources if so that we would have Peach, our strike hound, would be working the arroyo, and she would open with her funny, squeaky voice, and one yeah. of the guys would honor her, and then we'd hear this lovely roar, and then it would just disappear. And so now we have uh, one of our one of our best of these strange combination hounds is uh, is called Stone, and so now we look up well out ahead and there will be stone ranging out and if he sees the coyote he flies like the wind and and it's been absolutely fascinating to watch um as this pack matures and develops to see if will our scent hounds 
begin to coordinate with our sighthounds and vice versa. And I think that's kind of a big Western hounds. hunt experiment kind of right now. Uh, especially, yeah, I, think, yes. I love this. Yeah, the, first, the first time fox hunting has has had a 2.0. You guys haven't had an <laughs> yeah. update in, 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 you know, 500 years. So this is awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Nancy, it might be Nancy, fox we, hunting 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> we interviewed Rita Mae Brown. It's been about a year ago. It was, it was the last episode oh, I, Emily co-hosted. Yes, and I listened. That was a terrific interview. It was a wonderful conversation, but she, I think she mentioned, and we've talked about this a few times that really, you know, the the future of fox hunting is in the Western United States, just because that's where there's more open land. And yeah. the fact of the matter is, is, you know, you look at Santa Fe, you look at Nevada, you look at parts of California. I mean, and really even in the Midwest, you've got a lot drier conditions than what you have on the East coast. And I'm really curious to see, I, I've actually been out with a couple of packs that have some kind of, you know, sighthound crosses that they'll, they'll add in occasionally kind of like what y'all are doing. And I actually have a, a puppy that I got from a North Hills oopsie litter that is half Welsh foxhound and she's half Scottish deerhound, um, sighthound cross. And I oh, just think that'd be wonderful. She's she's beautiful, and I would love to stick her in with a pack, but I think most huntsmen yeah. would probably get mad at me ne near where I live. But she's young, so we, oh, yeah. we might have opportunities later. But so I just you know, and I I I'm dying to come hunt with y'all because I want to see I want to see how they mix in, and I'd love to go hunting with Grand Canyon too. But obviously, we you know after COVID before we spread our cooties. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, we've got to figure out how to. They're all the places that we've been saving up. We want to go these places. We're dying to do it. So it's like, get the vaccine and then we go. So, um, but yeah. So well, the, I kind of wonder if Huntsman, like yeah. if your Huntsman is maybe enjoying a little bit, not having the pressure of a large crowd to please in terms of entertainment and that actually getting to kind of focus in and just really work with his hounds. Or have you noticed any difference there? Um, well, Fortunately, like I said, we're a small hunt, and generally the folks who are less tuned in are, uh, you know, they're they're probably, they don't notice, you know, the, the less tuned in members of the field don't notice no matter what's going on. You know, you have to point it out to them. Look at this wonderful yep. thing that's happening. The rest of us are just intrigued to see how this plays out. And we, we you know, we had the discussions ahead of time where we said, okay, well, what if we got some of these interesting outcrosses and experimented with that? Would that be interesting? Would people support that? And you know, our, our gang said, this, is, this sounds amazing. Um, we'll just see how it plays. And I would say this is the year we're starting to see it come together because uh, Stone and Dart are the Saluki crosses that, that come to mind and they're, they're starting to get it. Although Dart is hilarious because they just have a totally different personality than the Fox sound. So, so Dart's kind of flittering around a little fairy child going, Oh, yep. look, a bunny. Oh, look, there's a cow. Oh, so, you know, the staff, they, they went into it with their eyes open. They knew they were going to have to really work to get this pack to come together and stay on top of what was the little fairy child wandering off to look for. But um, <laughs> they've, they've been open to it. You know, they're terrific folks. Um, so we have one professional uh, whip and then the rest are honorary. And 
they've all been doing it for a long time. So there's very little a hound can do that they haven't seen before. They've got their routine down, but, uh, but it has been interesting saying, okay, what does a Saluki cross think would be good to, to do up here? Yeah. Whereas the rest of the pack is, you know, taking a little shade under the tree and fairy child is out there going, oh, I should chase a bunny. <laughs> Welcome to Sighthounds. So you, yeah. I don't know if you're the best person to ask this question. Um, as a s- giant Sighthound fan and uh, Greyhound lover and Greyhound parent, was there a reason that, the Saluki was chosen over other sighthound breeds? Well, that's, that's a good question. And no, I don't have the knowledge to know that. Um, I would say Peter at Grand Canyon is the, is the person who did that cross. And, um, no, I need to he ask would Peter. probably, I need to yeah, ask you're going to have to ask Peter. Um, because, you know, he's, He's such a houndsman. He's he's got so much background and depth and skill, and he's always had, you know, he's he's got a kennel that's got lurchers, and separately for a while they had beagles, and then they've got the hounds, the regular foxhound pack, and then they began to do some crossing, and and I think it was his recommendation that we went on that was just you know here I've got some of these I think you would enjoy them, and I the. The only thing that comes to mind would be maybe they're not quite as fast as a greyhound cross. I don't know. I will tell I know you they somebody are like told lightning. Me once, yeah, somebody told me once why they did Salukis and not others. And I can't, it's it's not clicking in my head. Because I know in North Hills territory, which is in the Nebraska area, there's a gentleman yeah. who, he, he's not the huntsman up there, but there's a gentleman who, he likes to cross sighthounds with foxhounds and he, he, he hunts his own few hounds. Um, kind of similar to the way a foxhound pack ride, uh, hunts, but he's, he kind of does mm-hmm. it more by himself. And I think that it was something about the 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 climate of Grand Canyon and which Santa Fe, I believe, is pretty similar to the Grand Canyon climate that was why they chose Salukis. But we'll have to get yeah. Peter on and talk yeah, about that because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And I, oh, I know Peter would the, be the, great. Modern, yeah. the modern greyhound is not a particularly robust animal when it comes to weather conditions or underbrush they have such paper thin yes. skin because the modern greyhound oh, yeah. has been bred to race under very specific conditions kind of like the modern thoroughbred a lot of those lines right. are rather delicate mm-hmm. as far as their soundness and, and their management requirements i suspect that the modern racing greyhound versus the modern akc greyhound have a lot of similar issues. So yes, I can't wait to quiz him. Oh boy. Sorry. Oh yeah. So there, <laughs> well, there I remember go, but, being confused because I think Salukis are more similarly sized to a whippet. And whippets are actually pretty robust. But yeah, we'll have to uh-huh. we'll have to pursue yeah. this because I, I And maybe I it's think, also a coat thing, you know, because yes. they have a bit more hair. A little bit more and hair. I yes. have two of them. I have two of them that are we crossed so we crossed stone with one of our foxhounds. So now I have uh Two of our puppies are out here in my barn right now, and so I have Hawkeye and Hopi, and, and they, they are, are cute. Oh God, they're so cute! But they're so Hawkeye looks more like she looks much more like a hound, but she's just black and tan. She's you know she's I'm I I'm thinking oh tricolor, but right. my corgi is tricolor. Uh, Hawkeye is black and tan, and Hopi is 
looks a lot more like her dad. She's black with a little brown brindling across her. It's very subtle. It sort of looks like she just might have rolled in the dust. But they're so they're foxhound, running walker, and saluki. One half foxhound and the rest saluki running walker. So um, I think that's fascinating. So they're beautiful hounds, and and it's interesting too because the one who's black and tan, Hawkeye. She has a voice. She and I, I used to sit out in the barn with them and practice going roo roo because I wanted them to have voices. I wanted them to to be able to because you know, have are quiet. a nose. Yeah, they're quiet, and I, we need we need them to be that magic blend. Where wouldn't it be lovely right. if you had a sighthound who might put their nose down every now and then and had a voice would open? So right. So I I have great hopes for Hawkeye. And she is, they're both, you know, their temperament is lovely. Um, they're just, a, there's a, they're definitely more, uh, not flighty, but a little more standoffish, uh, a little more cautious. Yeah, yeah, a little tentative, more than, I've, I've raised so many foxhound puppies that would just bowl you over. You know, they're just, oh, I love you here, mom. Yep. These guys uh, will come and they'll bounce in front of you. But they're much less likely to be like in your lap. They're not. They're yeah. not quite as forward as foxhounds. Yes. They, they play so close I, that to the vest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're a little cautious, and and one of them more than the other. So I think, fortunately, you know, when we've got wonderfully sensitive whips and a huntsman who understands all types of canine behavior. You know, we're not going to run into trouble with these guys getting spooked and being, you know, becoming upset i think i think they will be brought along in a really good sensitive way but it's a very different personality than your basic hi there everybody kind of foxhound <laughs> right right so, oh i think it's yeah. i think we'll have to we'll have to follow along and check in with you once a year and just kind of see how it's you know mm-hmm. this is kind of one of those like I, you know i'd be lying if i said i wasn't a little bit annoyed by the doodle mixes you know, the, oh, the yeah. fancy, right. the fancy mixes oh, yeah, because we want to me. not have, to, yeah, you know, the fancy mixes to not clean our house. I think that the mix of these hounds to try to create, uh, you know, a purposeful hunting type dog, I think is really interesting. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's wonderful. So, so what does the end of the season look like for Cosala drone and do you guys have any, you know, post vaccination plans just to, are you just hoping to get back to normal or do you have like big travel ideas or what, what does it look like? Oh, it's, it's sort of a mix and all of, all of the above. Uh, last year, COVID hit just before we were going to do our closing hunt, which closing hunt, we always have some ridiculous theme that involves costumes and, and, possibly performances. I, we were going to do Fox Hunters on Broadway but it, as, our, as our closing hunt theme, and we had to cancel all of that. So for this year, since we will be finishing up the end of March and people will still not have had enough vaccine right. exposure yet, um, you know, we'll just quietly end with a bit of a whimper um, and then plan as, as soon as we feel like everybody's had a chance and and there's a level of confidence, then we're going to, you know, aim to have a big party. But because we really do, we, we miss each other. Even, even if we're together to hunt, we, we miss just the hanging around and sitting side by side around a campfire 
And normally we would be doing that for hours after the hunt every Saturday. I mean, my husband knows if he's, if, if he's at home and I've gone hunting, I won't be home till dark. You know, I, I yep. leave the, leave the property at seven and get home at seven because there's that much just sitting around together that we are prone to do. And we're just dying to get back to that. We also want to travel. We're, you know, we're looking at, normally we have one or two really great road trips a year. We've been down to Cloudline. We go up to Arapahoe. We've had terrific visits with Grand Canyon. And for several years, we've been trying to organize a trip out to visit the folks at Red Rocks. And so, you know, one thing or another gets in the way and COVID has been a larger thing than most. But when that's over... We want to do some road tripping, indeed. Wonderful. Well, if our listeners are intrigued and they want to come check out Cozilla Drone post-COVID, how would they find you? Ah, well, our website, where they can find contact information, is cozilladrone.ning.com. That's N-I-N-G.com. And um, we have a Facebook page as well. Uh, You can't actually post to it unless you've been allowed into it but since I'm a person (laughs) I'll keep an eye out for any incoming requests or they can just message me because I'm more than happy to uh to coordinate uh through uh email and that's just nancyambro at gmail.com excellent and we'll put put the the website in the show notes yes oh great yeah yeah we'll put the website in the show notes yeah yeah excellent Well, Well, Nancy, thank you so much. It was a joy to talk to you and get well soon. Glad you're glad you're on the uptick from the COVID. And um, again, we'll be keeping in touch watching those watching those sighthound mixes. I'm intrigued. Well, earlier, I promised another glove question for you. Yes. Back in the day when I fox hunted a lot, this was in the 80s. um, Most folks wore crochet back gloves to fox hunt and a crochet back yes. gloves for the uninitiated. The back of the glove, the top is made of crocheted cotton or crocheted cotton nylon. And it's off white most of the time. And the palm yep. is made of deer skin. And that's what you typically saw in the fox hunting field. And in the 21st century, what are we seeing nowadays? Well, with the cross, disciplining pollination. I don't know what the word I want to say is, but when you have a lot of people who are new to fox hunting and they're coming from the horse show world, yep. they pretty much all have black gloves oh. for showing. Yep. And my, and I'm no expert on fox hunting turnout because it changes with whatever like latitude and longitude you're at, depending in the world. Um, but black gloves used to be forbidden, but anymore, I've never seen anyone chastised for wearing black gloves. And quite frankly, they look, you know, it makes your hands look quieter when you have on a black coat and black gloves. Mm -hmm. So I think generally black gloves are fine. I actually ride, I actually fox hunt in um, some plain brown deerskin gloves that I got one at one of the feed stores locally. They're super comfortable. It's really what I wear to go feed when it's cold outside here, but they're nice. They, they grip the reins. Well, they, um, deer skin's brown. the best. Yeah. yeah. They're, it's, they're durable. They're like, 
not expensive. They look nice. I was actually looking at some pictures from a hunt that I went on last fall and I was like, look, like, you know, they, they blend in with what other people who are dressed very appropriately are wearing. Mm -hmm. So they don't stand out. You probably wouldn't want to wear your fuchsia SSGs. No, probably would want to avoid that if possible. Or like fluorescent yellow or lime green. Lime green would probably be out. Yeah. But yes. yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense that something in the in the off-white crochet family or the black family or the brown family, especially if yeah. you're out on rat catcher day and rat catcher being less formal attire where you might be wearing a, a hunt coat that is some kind of a dark green or brown um, plaid, brown gloves would be appropriate too. Sure. But wait, and when you get, like, if you get really into fox hunting, we all live for rat catcher days because yeah. tweed is way more fun than black. <laughs> yeah. Cause or black is black is black. There's not a lot you can yeah. do with it. Yeah. A little more self-expression. So I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but I, sew. have I said that before, you know, you have, you have um, alluded to your sewing projects, but we need to set some time aside on one of the upcoming episodes to talk all about your sewing adventures because they're pretty epic. Well, and I've, I've had a problem lately of buying a tremendous volume of tweeds. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, I I need to find a lot more hunts to go to, to wear all these tweed coats that I haven't made yet. But (laughs) it's, you know, you just get a little more um, creative license with the tweeds. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I still believe in staying conservative and not doing anything crazy, but but you can do a lot of fun stuff and still have conservative colors. You can have the yes. the beautiful hunter, or not even hunter green, the beautiful olive green with a teensy tiny little pink pinstripe in it. You can do all kinds of cool mm-hmm. stuff. Like, you'll see some like olive greens with like um, a subtle purple window pane. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've got a little nuts. Like shopping for the fabric is as fun as like wearing it hunting. Yes. The making it is a little more arduous, but you know, details. Yeah. And making a riding jacket of any sort, regardless of which style it is. And that's a whole different conversation is no laughing matter. That is some, that's some complicated sewing. I'm sorry. My mom used to make it when I was a little kid. It is freaking complex. There are too many moving parts. Too many. Yep. Yep. There we go. I can't I can't make anything more complicated than a polo wrap. <laughs> there we go. So that's that interesting stuff. There we go. Well, yeah. it's time for us to uh get Beth Dombrowski on, who is fox hunting with a less traditional breed. Let's hear about it. Yes, I love talking to guests about, you know, you know, not fox hunting on what they, you know, the stereotypical whatever X, the horse that people think about. So I'm excited to talk to Beth and hear about her experience. So I am delighted to have Beth Dombrowski joining us today. One of my goals with the fox hunting podcast episodes we have once a month is to um, just give examples to our audience about how accessible fox hunting is and that you don't have to have one certain type of horse or one certain type of saddle or one certain type of anything to fox hunt and that you don't have to gallop at all crazy high speeds and jump huge jumps or, you know, you can do that, but there's, there's a place for everyone in the hunt field. And I put out a little note in one of the Facebook groups for fox hunting, seeking folks who had fox hunted on standard breads. 
And I have hunted with riders on standard breads, but I myself have not actually ridden a standard bread yet. But Beth Dombrowski, our guest, has hunted, I believe, many seasons on a standard bread. So, Beth, if you would start off, just kind of tell us about where you live and where you fox hunt, and then tell us about your standard bread. Okay. Well, currently, uh, I live in Lovettsville, Virginia, and I hunt with Middleburg hunt with my son and um i've been in the virginia area since 07 and i'm hunting here in northern virginia my experience with standard breads dates back uh to chagrin valley hunt in ohio and that would have started in 1999 and i hunted there with howard lewis and um we ha- had a, many different breeds that we would bring along and he, Howard is in the show hunter hall of fame okay. and along the line. Yeah. He's was quite the gentleman. And, um, at any rate, we would get a, a standard breads brought up to us because we were in Northern Ohio. We had a track right there. And in the midst of it all, I ended up with uh, two different ones, and one particularly became quite the favorite of a lot of people that that hunted him because he was so forgiving. He was very welcoming, and there wasn't a mean bone in his body. Um, so he was great to get people out for the first time on. So tell us a little bit about. It sounds like you rode quite a few standard breads. Then did you have the opportunity to ride some that were fresh off the track? Uh, not, not in the hunt field. Uh, I, we had a young lady, um, who would come and work with different horses, uh, whether they were thoroughbreds or, or what breed, um, uh, particularly though the, the thoroughbreds off the track and the standard breads and repeatedly, um, her comment about the standard breads was that they were very smart and very quick to pick up on what she was asking them. And when she would start to to teach them new things under saddle, they were very quick to remember what they did the lesson before. Um, so, uh, but I, I did not ride, I'll be honest with you. I did not ride the greenies, but, um, you know, after they had been worked for, I don't know, maybe three to six months, um, then we would take them out in the hunt. And like I said, this one particular horse, his, his name, uh, was expensive Jag and we called him Jag. And he became just everybody's best friend out in the hunt field. Did you own, you owned Jag, right? Yes. Yes. So how old was he? Actually, well, he was four years old when I first met Jag. He came off the track. Um, He had a very conscientious owner. He had a um, injury and the veterinarian told her he could live the rest of his life comfortably or they could, you know, patch him up and try to keep racing him. And so he came to us and he was rehabbed and, um, the rest is sort of history. I mean, a four-year-old's fairly young though, to start, you know, to start hunting, you know, people will hunt thoroughbreds that young, but. Well, he, um, and and saying that he came off the track, he was laid up for a year. He had a crack and he had a, a, a spiral fracture. And so in saying that he did not hunt until he was closer to six or seven years old. Okay. Okay. So do you feel like that long layup made a big difference? 
Well, he was off for uh, almost probably a year. We put it, put him out in the pasture and let him heal. Well, let it in a stall. And then, then he, after he was pasture sound, we put him in a, a pasture. Um, and then he was brought into work. I always think of standard breads. Again, I have only been around them. I haven't ridden them. But to me, they seem like really workmanlike horses. Like they're, they they're, seem friendly and kind, but very they, workmanlike. Um, they love a job. They love to do something. They, they in, in, enjoy being praised and to know that they're doing what you want them to do. Um, I think any veterinarian that's worked on them would also say they're very level-headed. That's another thing that yeah. I cannot say enough about the breed. Um, I would actually ride along some with our vet and, and when I was in Ohio. And um, Dr. Lauren Wade, and she gave me permission to quote her tonight, that um, after a nuclear war, there will be two things left on Earth, cockroaches and standard breads. And she adores them. Um, they're level-headed and just happy to, to be have hands laid on them. They're, they're not the nervous type normally. Do you, in the ones that you've written, and I, I, you know, I think this is one thing that's maybe kind of intimidating for some people as to why they maybe don't, you know, seek out the standard breads off the track is the difference between driving and riding. Is that, was that a difficult transition for the ones you rode or could you really tell? No, very quickly, very quickly. They've had, they are handled and they, they very quickly take to saddle. I, I honestly, um, we put a saddle on a standard bread and he was better usually than any thoroughbred we get off the track. We would, you know, get him ungelded off the track and um, they were still just steady eddies. Absolutely wonderful. I love that. Is there, um, was Jag a pacer or a trotter? So he was a pacer. Um, you know, the, of course, being pacers and, and trotters. And I used to have a lot of people ask me, well, does he canter? Or how hard was it to get him to canter? And the one thing people need to remember is, of course, they can canter, some better than others, some are more athletic, but, you know, they are penalized and, and sent back uh, depending on how long they break stride, but they break stride into a canter on the track. So absolutely, pacers and trotters can both canter. And it's not difficult to teach them to, to, to canter on command? So there are some that are more athletic than others. I've always, I've never seen one that cannot canter. I see some that are smoother at it than right. others. Because I do follow um, the new vocations. They, you yeah. know, have a fair number of strandabreds that come through that, their program. And I think that, you know, if you're a fox hunter looking for a standardbred, they're you know, and I, again, I don't know a ton about the standard bread, um, retirement programs, but they do a really nice job on their postings, you know, discussing, you know, what the horse, if they're having trouble cantering and if not, and, you know, kind of to the level of their athleticism. So I think that that, that match, what you're saying matches what, what I've seen with the horses online. So right. did you hunt Jag his whole career and, and kind of, um, you have him retired now, if I recall. Yes, he will be, he's 28 now. I have his cousin uh, who will be 30 on June the 6th. I know his birthday for sure. Um, he uh, 
Jag has forever been just a, a you know, a, a calm, um, sweet guy, loves children, um, would, could do pony rides one minute, you know, lead line rides. But yet if you wanted to go out and, and go around the ring on him, he was game to do that. He was happy and uh, happy to, again, happy to please. But the best thing about Jag, and if anybody has ever been to Chagrin Valley Hunt Club in, in Ohio, um, it's a very idyllic setting, a, a little mill stream, and we would hook Jag up to a sleigh during snowstorms. That is so awesome. we, we would, yo, we'd get hot chocolate and, and it was a big to do. And here we, you know, had this barn full of, of hunt horses and, and hunters, um, you know, show string, and we would pull out the sleigh that belonged to Howard Lewis and off we would go. And, um, it, so he was a lot of fun and he re- just remains a lot of fun to this day. We, we always, and you know, the kids can go out and pet on him and, and um, give him carrots and things like that. And that's the biggest thing I want to say about this breed is they're so welcoming and so forgiving and they're good teachers. They're, um, they're very uh, olive branch to anybody that wants to get into riding, especially fox hunting. Well, and, and from your experience, where, where would you advise folks to, would you, you know, seek out track connections or is there specific standard bred retirement groups that you think are good resources to find horses? New Vacations does an excellent job. Um, and if a, a new person was doing it, I would, you know, at want the, them to stick to a, a program that has a good evaluation of each horse. Uh, before they would just, you know, willy nilly go out and do it. But um, if there's anybody, any experts out there that would like to, you know, help these horses, um, they do need an outlet. You know, we, we need to find jobs for them. They're great trail horses. Um, You know, the list is endless um, as the things they do. I will also tell you another fun fact about Jag. Um, He has also carried the Prince of Monaco. Cool. The, the Prince of Monaco was in town for the Cleveland Pentathlon and he was out and they did some switcheroos to try to see which horse would be best for him. And it ended up for the Pentathlon. He did not ride Jag, but um, one of his bodyguards had uh, rode Jag around and, and that's just how quiet he is. Like the bodyguard had never really ridden and he just wanted to be on a horse to be able to keep up with him, the Prince. That so, um, delightful. yeah, they're, they're just... I can't say enough good things about them and they need advocates and we as fox hunters need to be able to draw many different individuals into our sport. As far as I'm concerned, we need, we need to um, get some more interest going here. Yeah. And I, I think it's just, you know, and everything you've, you've said just really harkens to the, you know, not everybody needs a first flight, you know, three, six, you know, field hunter. there's plenty of people who are going to be doing second flight hilltopper that, you know, you're going to enjoy it more if you're on a horse that's calmer and more unflappable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, especially whether you're getting into the sport or maybe it's a, an older person who just doesn't want to you know, be riding um, first flight, um, but they want something dependable and predictable. And that is a standard bread, dependable and, and predictable. And athletic enough to keep up because, you know, that that's, oh yeah, there's definitely a lot of hunts out there that you don't necessarily have to jump, but they'll go out for a few hours. And I think the standard bread is a great answer to the question of 
just keeping Absolutely. up and keeping along. If our listeners wanted to find out any more about you or Jag, or is you know, do you have social media or any anywhere people could connect? Uh, I am on Facebook, Beth Dombrowski. Perfect. B-O-M-B-R-O-W-S-K-Y. Great. Thank you so much. Another fascinating discussion. And as, as I said, I'm a I'm a standard bread fan. I love me a jughead. So that's that's <clears throat> really cool that she took that horse. And it sounds like he was another one of those heart horses. Yes, and his his name is Jag. And I when we were connecting and talking about coming on the podcast, I was like, oh, my twenty seven, soon to be twenty eight year old heart horse is also Jaguar. Isn't that funny? Wow. Cool. And, I, you know, I didn't, we didn't have time in the conversation because we ran out of time. I would love to know his breeding because I, yes, I, there's certain bloodlines that I like to follow in the standard breads because just like every other breed, there are certain bloodlines that had confirmation traits and personality traits, things like that. And it's always fun to, to delve into those a little bit. So, yay. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. I think it's time for us to wrap yes. up a little bit here. And where can folks find you and stalk you appropriately on social media? Um, the best place to find me is on Instagram and you can just search for at TN Tibbets, two B's, two T's. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. There you go. And you can have all the shows with you wherever you go. If you haven't done so already, head on over to your app store and download the free Horse Radio Network app. It works for iPhones and Android. Or you can subscribe and listen to the Horse Radio Network shows, all 14 or 17 or however many we've got nowadays, on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes, Spotify, and others. And thank you very much, Tara, for joining me and uh, chatting about fox hunting again. Of course. Good night. Good night. Good night.